Okay, we're going to get started. Um, hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event on preparing for future challenges, how government can best use science. Uh, it's very good to be back at the first in-person conference for a couple of years. Uh, indeed, the first since this government uh, was elected, a good moment to reflect on what's been an extraordinary uh, period we've just been through and the challenges ahead for, for the government and for the country. Um, my name is Tom Sass. I'm, I'm an associate director at the Institute for Government. I lead our work on policy making. So this is a government that likes to talk about science, uh, not just being led by it, but also to quote the 29 manifesto, 2019 manifesto, creating a vibrant science-based economy post-Brexit, indeed of becoming a science superpower. Uh, British science played a prominent role in the global response to COVID-19. Uh, we had some very big successes, as you all know, from the vaccine uh, to diagnostics. Uh, but the pandemic also exposed problems uh, with the way that government uses science, as well as a wider lack of resilience. Uh, so the purpose of this panel is to have a fairly broad discussion about the role of science in the UK, how government draws it in and applies it and what it does, um, and how we can be better prepared to face future challenges. We've got a great panel to talk about all of that. Uh, Greg Clark is chair of the Science and Technology Committee. Uh, he served as business secretary between 2016 and 2019, developing an industrial strategy that majored on the role of science. Uh, and he held several other ministerial roles before that, uh, including science minister. He's been at the forefront of efforts in parliament to scrutinize the way that government's been using science advice in the way it's handled COVID. Sir Mark Walport has held key positions at the top of UK science over several decades. Uh, after a career as a, a professor of medicine at Imperial, he was director of the Wellcome Trust, then of course government chief scientific advisor from 2013 to 2017, uh, and then the first CEO of UK Research and Innovation from 2018 until last year. And he's also of course been a key member of the SAGE Advisory Committee, often on our airwaves over the last uh, 20 months or so. Professor Ian Walmsley uh, is provost at Imperial College London, uh, and his research focuses on optical science and technology. He was the director of the Networked Quantum Information Technology Hub, uh, and he's also a member of the leadership team and management board of the Quantum Computing and Simulation Hub. Uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Society, the Optical Society, and the American, American Physical Society, and the Institute of Physics. Um, and Kath Haddon uh, is a, a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and our resident historian, uh, expert on the Constitution and author of some of our work on science advice and the way governments used it during the pandemic. Uh, Polly Toynbee, unfortunately, wasn't able to join us, but sent her apologies. Um, so I'm going to start by asking uh, my panel a few questions and having a bit of a short discussion. Uh, we'll then have around 25 minutes or so uh, for questions from you. Uh, we'll be uh, recording this event and uh, live tweeting it at ifgcons 21 uh, and the event is, of course, on the record. Uh, we're not expecting any fire alarms. If you do hear an alarm, then Penny at the back will be uh, directing you on what to do. Uh, and we're going to aim to wrap up at about four, uh, about 2.15. Greg's going to leave us a bit earlier than that at 2. Um, lastly, we're very grateful to Imperial College London and the Royal Society, who've each played their own uh, role over the last 18 months um, for supporting this event. So, Greg. Um, the UK has one, of the, has one of the highest death tolls from COVID in the world. What are the lessons uh, from COVID, including how government uses science, and how confident are you that the government is learning them? 
Uh, well, thank you, Sean. The first thing to say is that uh, I don't think we can even make that assessment uh, of whether we have one of the, the worst death tolls in the world, because this is evidence the pandemic is not over. Uh, and there are two problems with that. One is that different countries measure deaths from COVID in different ways. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, in the successive waves, the um, performance, as it were, of, uh, of a country that was thought to have done well in the first wave has not necessarily translated uh, into subsequent waves, leading to big questions for policies we see in New Zealand uh, just this week. So, uh, so actually, uh, I'm sure the, the Institute will be um, placing its beady eye um, on these comparisons because it is uh, important. But I don't think we can give a definitive judgment on that yet. Um, I think the good news is that uh, the pandemic, uh, for all uh, the horrors of it, and no one would want to uh, to experience it, uh, it has proved an occasion in which the public have probably heard more from scientists and more directly from scientists than at any time in my lifetime. And I think that's a good thing, um, because as the Institute does across the board, you have experts in different uh, subject areas uh, who share their advice, share their knowledge. And the fact that we have had uh, a, a great public appetite in the proceedings of the committee that I chair have had uh, viewing figures beyond anything that we've previously uh, experienced because people are interested in the, uh, in the detail, understanding it. So I think that is, uh, that is positive for science um, if we are to to continue to include uh, the public uh, in that. Um, the report uh, of the joint inquiry that, that my committee, the Science and Technology Committee, uh, and the Health and Social Care Committee undertook uh, is, uh, is going to be published imminently. Um, and so it would be wrong for me to, uh, to talk about too many of the conclusions uh, on this. Um, suffice to say this, and, uh, and this is something that the committee has written about and wrote to the Prime Minister about and wrote to Sir Patrick Vallance about early in the, the pandemic, uh, which was that if you are to, to take scientific advice and you, and you are to give a prominence to scientific advice, then we all know that the, the way that science proceeds is through contests, through disputations, through publication. Uh, and sometimes people refer to the science I think it's now increasingly understood that there, is, there isn't the science. Um, there are sciences, uh, and there are many scientists. Uh, and, and again, I, I think knowing that, the transparency uh, of deliberation, and in particular, the basis on which advice is given, I think is very important. We're not contracting out to, uh, to people just to tell us what to do and without the public having any interest in why they're saying that, they're very interested in it. Uh, and so the, the inherited structures of SAGE, and, uh, and Mark and I in governments worked on uh, through SAGE on a number of different times, I think did need revising um, in response to the pandemic. The membership of SAGE, you might recall, was secret um, at first. Uh, the minutes uh, were not published. They would have been published after the, the end of the emergency. Um, and the papers on which scientific advice were based were not published. Uh, so we had some sessions of our inquiry about that and wrote to the Prime Minister and Sir Patrick Vallance to say, we think you can be 
self-confidence about being open, and this won't lead to some sort of collapse in confidence. Uh, the exposure that actually there are different views uh, is something that people know anyway, and they're perhaps more likely to be skeptical and, uh, and doubtful if they can't see the basis of the advice. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I should put on record my, uh, my acknowledgement uh, of Sir Patrick Balance's role in, in changing those uh, inherited uh, procedures so that we do now know who's on stage, we know what the, the minutes of the meetings are, and we know the papers uh, on which they take decisions. So that is, uh, I think, an example of what our uh, overall inquiry seeks to do. Obviously, it's, it has taken place and the, the report will take place sometime before the full public inquiry, but there are lessons to be learned on the way. Uh, and I think it would be wrong to simply defer them to the time of the, uh, the look back when it's all over, uh, as it were, if it ever is. Um, uh, it's to, to learn lessons that can be applied. And I think that's a good example uh, of lessons that were applied successfully. We might come on to some others that could have been applied on the way, but weren't, um, and we need to keep pushing them. Do you think the public inquiry is sort of as such as the plans are developing is proceeding with sufficient urgency? Yes, I, I, so I agree with, uh, with the, the government's you know, decision on this that, that we should uh, we should have a, a very comprehensive review of everything from beginning to end. I mean, uh, yeah, Mark Higgins uh, and, and others will uh, no doubt say that. COVID is going to be around in some form or another. But once we feel that we are over the emergency phase of it, I think that's the time to do it for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that you know, a lot of the decision makers are still immersed in decision making uh, at the moment. And to respond comprehensively to a very thorough inquiry will take and should take quite a deal of their time. Um, and, and the other thing is, as I said right at the beginning, we, we're not in a position that we, I think, can reliably say, you know, it's over now and it's time to look back. So I think, I think that's the right call, but uh, to, uh, to cut a blow, um, the, the joint trumpet of uh, my committee and the Health and Social Care Committee, there clearly is a role for an interim lessons learned uh, report, and that's what we've tried to do. And we, we very much look forward to sort of seeing the, the detail of the recommendations in that. We, I mean, we at the IFG certainly found some of your your reports during the pandemic itself very helpful. Um, without sort of go sort of setting out those details, do you have sort of confidence that there is appetite within government to sort of make some of these changes to, to learn these lessons? Do you see that happening before we just move on? Well, I hope so. I wouldn't take it for granted. Um, uh, you know, there's there's examples that might make one optimistic. So the one that I gave the the greater transparency of advice. Um, but there are other examples, if I think of the test and trace operation, um, we in the spring said that when we went into the summer and there was going to be something predictable lull in the, the intensity uh, of the pandemic, that should be an occasion to, to really build up testing capacity. That didn't happen, certainly to the degree that was appropriate. and. This time last year, we had a big problem uh, of very delayed test results, which, uh, as everyone here knows, time is critical uh, in this thing. So, so sometimes the government has been willing to, to 
take advice and apply those lessons you know, uh, offered in, in the spirit of, uh, of being constructive, but sometimes for whatever reason it's, it's proved resistance to that and that may have to do with things that the IFG studies as to, as to how advice uh, is acted upon. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Mark, I welcome any reflections on the sort of issues that Greg set out there with the management of the pandemic, mm. but I wonder if you could also broaden this out for us. And we, we hear this term science superpower um, bandied around. Yeah. I mean, what does the UK okay. need to do to become one? Okay, thank you. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that our modern world is absolutely shaped by science and its application to engineering and technology. And it is all the sciences and the social sciences and actually the arts and humanities. So, uh, and what we need to do, I think, is to use it more for preparedness. And so, if you look at a very concrete example, which is the development of a vaccine for um, uh, COVID by now dead Sarah Gilpin, that actually started, firstly, with a great deal of support for immunologists, people who could understand the immune system and its response to infectious diseases. But in 2015, using £110 million of ODA funding, a vaccine network was set up, recognising the fact that coronaviruses did pose a threat to the human population. So the idea, as it were, that coronaviruses weren't talked about is completely wrong. And it was because Sarah Gilbert and her colleagues in Oxford had been preparing a vaccine for the MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory System coronavirus, which actually, if that becomes a pandemic, uh, knocks this one into a cock patch. It's a very, very dangerous virus indeed. Um, and so actually using the science for an insurance policy is really critical. And that insurance policy takes two forms. It takes the people that are trained as researchers, as engineers and technologists, but it also looks at the important areas. Um, and so my reflection is that when you look at the opportunities and also the threats, uh, the environmental threats, uh, climate, biodiversity, the enormous amount of waste that uh, more than 7 billion people on the planet Earth uh, are producing, then at the end of the day, the solutions to this are going to come from discovering new knowledge and actually applying it. Um, and I think that it's inevitable that we look through the lens of a national emergency at the moment. Um, and it's, uh, you know, for uh, R0 to become a household word, as it were, and people knowing about reproduction and other viruses is extraordinary. And I think it is, in that sense, I think science is in the public consciousness in a way that it hasn't been for many, many years, actually. Um, but countries in general are very good at managing disaster emergencies. And what we're not good at is paying the insurance policy to actually prevent the next one from happening. And so one reflection that I would have on test and trace is that, or track and trace, that, 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 that rich countries had forgotten about infectious diseases. The, the, the focus of public health had switched from infectious disease to chronic disease. And uh, this is actually, there's one lesson to learn. It's a failure of paying the insurance policy for better public health. Um, and it was in the 19th century that John Snow discovered uh, the route by which cholera was transmitted through um, oral fecal route and sewage. Um, but we effectively took away a lot of the test and trace facilities, the diagnostic facilities to prevent infection. And we've done this over decades. This isn't something that's happened in the last five years, 10 years, or 20 years. Um, and so I think that what we need to do is the UK has an extremely good national risk register. Uh, but what we need to do as in any good organization, use the risk register to manage and prevent things from happening. 
And I think that's what we consistently fail. So if we need, if we're going to use science better, then I think we have to use it to be prepared and actually learn from our successes, which is that we did complex each other. And of course, Greg will remember that as part of the industrial strategy challenge model, we recognize this is sort of the vaccine manufacturing solution. And so something called the Vaccine Manufacturing Innovation Center was set up and funded, but ran foul of planning permission for about three years. Um, I, I think it's fair to say the planning was solved quite quickly uh, at the beginning of last year, but I mean, frankly, too late. Uh, uh, and I think that you know, the vaccine passport has got to be amended for actually creating. It has been an extraordinary effort in logistics. Um, and again, I think that what science tells us is actually about a lot about complex systems, about cascading failures. And what we're seeing at the moment is the, the great interconnectedness of modern infrastructures, where we've become more efficient but less resilient. And so you see that gas prices go up, it becomes uneconomic to make fertilizer, and you suddenly lose your CO2 stream, which was important for uh, stunning animals and killing them mainly, so you, you potentially can't slaughter uh, pigs and, and, and uh, chickens. And what's more, uh, it's carbon dioxide in the packaging if you stop it going off in, your, in our fridges. And this is an example of a complex cascading failure. Um, in terms of the science of superpower, I'm afraid power requires fuel. And the fuel in this case is people and money. And the UK R&D is stubbornly stuck at 1.74% of GDP. Uh, the government has had a target to take it up to 2.4% for quite a long time now, and we are not making progress towards that. Uh, there was a commitment to increase R&D funding to 23 billion, and I think we're all waiting with bated breath to see what's in the spending package. But we are falling far behind um, similar countries. So France has just increased its um, uh, funding for its national research institution by threefold. Uh, the Americans are falling another $250 billion into research. Um, and frankly, if you look at our economy um, and you look at all the economic opportunities, it, this industrial revolution, which is largely um, IT, but also clever devices, and Ian can talk more about that, depends on us being a superpower. And you know, frankly, we will not be a superpower if we don't provide the fuel. So it needs to be very so I think one wouldn't look necessarily, I think it's worrying on that front. Uh, it's one thing to talk about it, but the rhetoric has got to be matched by reality. Brilliant. Um, very IFG question here, but um, apologies for that. Um, do you think the structures in government need to change in response to what we've I mean, so people have ah, talked yes. about using SAGE in a slightly different way in a future crisis, but interestingly, we've also seen this new Office for Science Technology Strategy, uh, I think it's called. So, so it's yeah. a reshuffling in the Cabinet Office. Um, Yes, well, I think in principle the office is a good idea, but the question is its connectivity. And um, it's one thing to have an office, the question is what it will actually do. I mean, the machinery of government we have, this is again an IFG point, goes back to Haldane's report in 1918. We still have a substantial Haldane structure. But Haldane said one very important thing. He said that he thought the government would work better if it took account of evidence. And that was by far and away the most sensible thing he said in what is a beautiful, very thin report that covers the whole machinery of the government. Um, but I think that, it, again, it's the customer function for science that really matters. Uh, and, and, you know, people think that from the outside world that if they drop a very clever report onto the minister's desk, stuff will happen. But it, it's a question, actually, of making sure that there is a good customer function. And that applies in both the civil service and also in government itself. And so uh, 
having uh, science at the centre of government, it, it was there before under William Waldegrave. Um, science was actually in the cabinet office. Um, and then there was a reshuffle when, when Michael Overtime came to be uh, the treasurer and the mm -hmm. mining sort of moved back. Um, there isn't necessarily a right answer to where science is, but I think the important thing is that although it's in place, there is no part of government where science doesn't matter. And I would just make the point that the job of people like me is to provide the evidence. It's not the job of the scientists to make the policies. Um, and I think that's sometimes where uh, there is misperception of the role of science and government. Yeah. And just on your comments about the sort of fuel needed for, for, for becoming a science superpower, as well as the sort of 2.4 percent point, is it? Is there also a link here to levelling up? One thing we yes. hear a lot about is that actually our science base is too narrow, too dominated by London, Oxford and Cambridge, you know, we're sort of very strong in some areas, but not others. Do we need to see science as sort of having a key role in this levelling up vision, which we're hearing so much about at this conference? Well, because it's part of the economy of the country and is so pervasive, then it's important in every part of the country. But uh, it is, I think, sometimes overdone. You know, Manchester has a great university. Uh, there are great universities distributed around the country. Um, and, but if you, look at, uh, if you want to look at um, science and economy, look at the semiconductor cluster in South Wales. Um, and I think the challenge here isn't that we're trying to create a nanotechnology businesses in every part of the country. It is actually to look around and see where the strengths are and to build on those. And there are great strengths across the country. Um, but they, you know, each, each area, in some senses, has got to form its own strategy uh, around Warwick or, or manufacturing. So I think, yes, it's, it's a very important part of levelling up, and I wouldn't for a second pretend that there's not more to be done, but I think that science is a very much a part of the story of levelling up, um, and that does go with skills. And I think the, 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 there is another side of skills, which I think that the UK has this sort of block on recognising the power of, sort of technological skills, uh, which in Germany are very, very highly prized indeed. And so if your child goes to a, a technological that is as highly valued as going to uh, a more traditional academic university. And I think that there's, we need skills at every level. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ian, um, how's the pandemic been for scientists trying to engage with government and also communicate with mm. the public? Uh, I think the pandemic has rehabilitated uh, expertise as a guide to making decisions in the public domain. And, and as a result has elevated some scientists to quite prominent public figures, uh, even TV stars. Uh, and I think they've done that by being able to combine both the rigor of being able to present evidence clearly, but also empathy for the subject that they are and, and the people that they're engaging with. Uh, and, and, and beyond that, I think developing a level of trust in what that uh, advice looks like. And that, I think, is, the, is a key thing going forward, is how do we ensure that science remains a, a trustworthy public discourse? Uh, you, from, from Greg and, and Mark, of course, about the need for transparency in how science is scrutinized. I think that is absolutely right. We definitely need to, to maintain the focus on that. Second, I think we have to be clear that um, there is no there is no unique output from science. There is uh, perspectives on what the evidence gives us to conclude. And I think we have to understand that variance and use that as part of the discourse. So making sure that there's no uh, internecine uh, fighting to 
say this is right, this is wrong is, is quite important. So that's I think how I think we build trust. And I, and I hope that we can continue to remain in the public public eye for that. Um, then I think that in terms of in engagement with government, you've heard a bit about the structures, uh, SAGE particularly, the Joint Committee on Vaccines and Immunology, et cetera. I think there's quite a lot of helpful structure, but Mark will know better. The, the, the uh, science advisory network within government, I think, is a very good way for, uh, for that information to be embedded right at the heart of policymaking. But there's no doubt that we can use more to connect a wider range of scientists across a wider range of disciplines to uh, a wider range of government, uh, government actors. Um, one, one might ask, for example, within UKRI and the research councils, there are fantastic networks out to whatever's the cutting edges, all the domains of experts. How do we draw on uh, an entity that the government has already established to help inform policy making even more. So, uh, you know, for the future, uh, Mark has pointed out this tension between efficiency and resilience. Resilience is about redundancy, and, and how does one make a case, strong case, for having that redundancy in the system so that you are ready for what comes in the future? Uh, and technology is going to be at the basis of all the big societal transformations in the future, where, as you've heard from from uh, climate change, from food uh, resilience, from pervasive information uh, technologies, whether that's AI or quantum computing. I thought I'd give that a plug right here. Um, I think a second point, uh, Mark, Mark's also noted this idea of, of a fuel. I, I would take the idea of an ideas ecosystem. How do you generate ideas, test them out, move them from uh, uh, from the ones that are fruitful now, how do you move those to innovation? How do you put them into the new technology sector? How do you grow jobs and grow economy through those? Um, I think part of that is also the idea that you must be globally connected. So for me, science superpower and global Britain are absolutely intertwined. You need to have that exchange of ideas to really test them out as rapidly as possible. And the multiple different perspectives that you get from different people looking at them is absolutely crucial. And then building on that to get the innovation ecosystem to move them to a point where they can become new commercial and, uh, uh, and other products, I think, is, is the next piece that we need to work on bigger. Just on the, on the first part of that, some of your scientists at Imperial have been under intense scrutiny, really, through the pandemic. You think of particularly people like Neil Ferguson and someone uh, I sort of heard him on the radio talking about the abuse he had received and mm. some of the, you know. Have you had to sort of rethink how you support your academics and your, your scientists to sort of play some of these very public, very prominent roles? Uh, yes, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. Scientists are humans too, and it's sometimes uh, easy to, to forget that. So it's certainly the case that one need, scientists need to understand how they can convey the messages that they're carrying, and institutions like ours need to understand how we can better support and train uh, uh, individuals to do that. So science communication media center I think has been very good we have our own science communication masters program at Imperial uh, and and various ways like that in which we can we can help support our, yeah. our scientists yeah and and on the point of being globally connected we've seen some progress some ideas of sort of fast-track visas things mm -hmm. like this I mean do you think we are open enough to sort of bring in the sort of talent that we need and keep it here yeah I think the global visa program has been a really good idea uh, I think the other end of it of course is bringing in uh, young people who are going to be 
who are going to be contributing in the future. So that's also around students, for example, who are, who are sort of the engine of the new sector. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could provide us with a bit of um, historical context. You know, why, why, why is sort of using uh, science and government quite difficult? And actually talk us through what, what, what you found in the report we did on, um, on science advice during the pandemic as well. Yeah, sure. I'll try and weave all of that together. I mean, the first thing to say is I think if you look um, at a, a much longer perspective on, on government, you know, going back to um, Churchill and uh, the role that Lord Cherwell played um, close to him, science, it's interesting. It's always been one of these things that's, um, shall I say, a bit sexier for, for governments to sort of say it's like some superpower you use that, that they're going to rely on. And even Harold Wilson talking about the white heat of technology, you know, it's, it's almost like they portray it as something that's going to solve the world's ills, and we're in a bit of danger at the map of that um, at the moment with uh, climate change, where somehow or other something's going to come over the horizon and, and that we can rely on and fix and so forth. And I think what's been um, fascinating, very difficult for governments over the course of this pandemic, and also for the media, for the public, for organisations like us, is just getting back to that understanding of what science actually is. And there's often a conflation between the concept of science evidence and what actually we can put weight on that. And then science advice, where we've, we've seen a very prominent role, not just for um, SAGE, but also for the chief medical officer and the chief scientific advisor, where they have a very difficult role to play. SAGE is a, a bit more removed in as much as it's a body that comes together and and kind of summarises what the evidence can say and what we can conclude from that. Um, but witty and balance have to go that stage further and, and have that conversation with the politicians, with ministers, with the prime minister about, OK, well, what do we do with that? And we've seen some very tricky moments where there just simply wasn't enough science evidence to be able to make a decision. Face masks at the beginning of the pandemic was a classic example where, um, you know, the science that the scientific advice was pushing towards, well, actually, we don't know that they make enough of a difference. And uh, so the government went too far in that direction. And yet, you know, the latter half <coughs> of the, the sort of pandemic thus far, we ended up relying more and more on, on face masks. And similarly for behavioural science, um, that's been through a fascinating journey because at times understanding what the public might do in the specific context of, of this um, virus, what it does, how it impacts people, what that means in terms of epidemiological impact. That's been something that they've had to almost work out in real time. Yes, there's been a certain amount of um, sort of resilience, you know, uh, work done in advance to try and understand how people react during a pandemic and so forth. But we, it became clear that some of those weren't necessarily, didn't necessarily hold true. So studies of what might happen in schools, you know, if Firstly, if we close them all, is that going to help? Then when we open them up, how do we open them up? But we were having to see people try to work this out in real time as we're going, and that makes it very difficult for decision-making. So I think when we think about what, how government uses science and science evidence and science advice, we have to think about how well it understands the difference between the two and how it's communicating that to the public and whether they're understanding that actually there isn't the weight on this. And this is something that we pointed to in our report um, about the idea of being led by the science versus being guided by the science, which are very different things. And 
you know, there was a lot of frustration in the scientific community about the idea of being led by the science, as if somehow that will magically give you all the answers and, and you'll have a pandemic solution here. So these are the sort of things that, that we talked about in our, our report, which is why we focus not just on the structures as they currently exist, but actually what Marx referred to, the connectivity within government, how these different things add up. So it was things like the frameworks for decision-making, how science is considered and weighed alongside other considerations, whether it's economic and social research, as long as, as, as well as um, policy um, and political decisions that, that actually aren't just based on that alone. Um, and second was about setting out the basis for decisions. And this is something we've long looked at with Sense About Science, where we've talked about the evidence uh, transparency of policymaking. And oftentimes you'll see policies just announced in a press release. Um, and they don't necessarily say this is based on, you know, this body of evidence. And it, that doesn't mean you need fully, you know, footnoted, um, peer-reviewed journal articles behind every single policy decision. But it, what we, we ask with Sense About Science is, could just a you know an average member of the public understand what led to this policy, what it's based on, what future analysis might go into seeing whether or not it actually does the thing that you're saying it's going to do. And during COVID, we saw some very variable experience of that. And then the second thing it's been mentioned already today is intelligent customers. So what do both ministers and also the civil service need in terms of uh, induction training support? actually understand how to use science well and to incorporate it with with other kind of things and then the final thing we talked about was red teaming how do you make sure especially when you have very limited information that you're not following into a sort of a pattern of behavior that you are actually questioning yourself because again you know I've talked about evidence I've talked about advice there's also the methodology the scientific methodology of do we actually know that this is going to do the thing that we think it's going to do? How can we test it robustly? How can we challenge ourselves and so forth? So that's that's kind of crucial to it. Brilliant. And you've talked before about, look, if we look back at some of these past crises, foot and mouth, swine flu, um, actually a lot of the same problems occurred. You know, you can look at the inquiries into those crises and see these issues come up in the time after time, time yeah. again. Why do you think they haven't been acted on? And do you have confidence, and I asked Greg this question, but do you have confidence this time might be a bit different? Um, I think the problem with the inquiry is by the time it happens, a lot of the changes will or will not have already occurred in Whitehall, and that is often the case uh, with any kind of inquiries that looks into um, how governments operated during a crisis. Um, because the, you know, the government does have to start learning lessons and moving on, and this is one of the reasons why we called for an interim lessons learned kind of um, discussion just so that you could get those a bit more transparent because we believe something must have been going on inside government but whether that's individuals within government thinking actually I'll do this slightly differently or whether it's something a bit more consistent bringing it together um, that's really important but the other the other difficulty with this is um, as much as we're talking about science actually a lot of this is very basic human stuff uh, ministers are under an awful lot of different pressures, some of which is literally, I've got to go on a press conference and I need some slides that work and that explain to people what the hell it is that we're doing. Some of it is just the pressure of time, exhaustion, you know, situation where you've got a prime minister in intensive care with the very thing that you as a government are trying to, to fight against. Um, so there's an awful lot of other things that make it difficult to just, when you sit back and look in retrospect, what it is that you should have done. 
But the other problem is that we are um, not as good as we could be in this country about following through with inquiries. Too, um, too often there isn't a clear sort of body who will then follow up um, with the inquiry and say, actually, have these been implemented? There was uh, the Bichard uh, review into the Soham murders was one where he said, actually, I'm coming back to see whether or not you've, you've gone and implemented those. And we need similar now. So we you know, talked about Greg's committee and Parliament being some of the people who make sure that anything recommended um, in the inquiry is actually followed through and keep you know, asking those questions of government to make sure that, that that's followed through. <coughs> I'm going to throw it open to questions. I'm just going to ask one more of my own, um, which is, Greg, I want to pick up this issue of the National Risk Register yeah. and the sort of Civil Contingency Secretariat this is absolutely key when we think about future risks. I think some of the analyses, um, certainly we looked at it, um, Alex Thomas there in the second row, um, found that you know some of these risks were identified, mm -hmm. but they then weren't carried through in yeah. the sort of operational planning, whether that was in hospitals or schools or whatever. I mean, have you got ideas on what you think needs to happen in that sort of risk planning, you know, that, that sort of space? So I strongly agree with Mark. I think it's an insurance perspective. Um, you know, the truth is that you it's about spending money or kind of or people or, uh, human resource on things that may not happen or in fact are probably very unlikely to happen and the pressures in government are such that there's always day-to-day -day things that happen that are unexpected that if you've got you know good people who are working on some kind of tail risk uh, event there's a temptation to say, right, you know, that's all very well, but we need you to, to sort out fuel prices or uh, whatever. That's always a temptation there. And when it comes to spending reviews, we've got one uh, at the moment. If you've got operational cuts that you're faced with, it is, it is understandable, but, but, you know, but wrong to, sacrifice those things that are about insuring against the, the future. I mean, it's the insurance problem. We all, you know, we all have a daily decision as to what we insure against and what we don't. But actually, quite, quite often we do take out uh, insurance and quite often the state requires us to take out uh, insurance. So, we, so it is possible to sort of override uh, these instincts, but that's what we have to do. And in evidence to our inquiry, um, Oliver Letwin, who was the, the minister responsible for this during the Cameron government, uh, spoke ruefully about how he had uh, appointed, recruited and appointed uh, a group of uh, epidemiologists with particular infection uh, in coronavirus type uh, diseases. Um, uh, but they were, when he checked what I described had happened, they'd been redeployed um, somewhere else in the, in the last uh, two or three years. So. So we need to, to organise to pay the insurance premiums. I mean, on that point specifically, I think one of the big challenges is that um, it's the de departments that have the operational responsibility. So if you are in DHSC and you've got a waiting list, there's going to be an enormous amount of pressure to spend your money on that. Uh, the insurance policy is public health. Um, and that's much harder to find money. But it seems to me that actually, if you look at the levelling up agenda, an enormous part of that is actually about the public health of the nation. Um, and you know, one of the problems is that a lot of the levers for public health are actually held outside the Department of Health as well. They're about what makes places livable. They're about transport. They're about education. And an investment in education 
may yield a benefit in health 50 years later. And that's the big challenge. And so I think governments find it, and it's not just the UK government, I think governments across the world find it very difficult. Um, and I, just a, one point on, on something Kath said, which is that the job of SAGE is actually to advise the GCSA and mm. the CMS. So government is not there. I mean, they have there are virtual reserves from the department. But so that's the job of Sage. But uh, and I think something that scientists sometimes don't appreciate is that policymakers often have to make decisions based on uncertainty. That's life. You can't actually say to a minister, um, "Well, if you give us five years, not money, we'll find out more about coronavirus." By which time, it's killed. <coughs> you know, so, so so decisions always have to be made. And and although you know, coronavirus has been very, very difficult. Um, uh, Bob May, who had to deal with spongiform encephalopathy, that was seriously difficult mm. because you know no one knew whether cattle, how it, how it was transmitted, whether it would be transmitted. Um, at least with coronavirus, it is a virus and we know about it. The really big policy difficulty, I think, is that you know the fundamental principle of infection control is to keep people apart. But depriving people of their liberty does not come easily to policymakers. Uh, and and it, it, some countries with different uh, policies find it a lot easier to do. But I think that's been the issue. Um, and of course, it turns out that people, certainly initially, were pretty happy to be locked down because they were pretty scared of the virus with good cause, actually. And there's a lot of social science to be learned as part of that. But I think it is a fact of the matter is that uh, policymakers always have to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. And uh, when it comes to the civil contingency of the Secretariat, I think one of the challenges is a lot of what they do is on the secure crowd cycle. Mm. And so um, it wasn't actually that it was secret what the membership of um, SAGE was, but it was never published. And so in my days, well, you, could, you, were, you were at liberty to say that you were a member of SAGE, but it wasn't actually published. Um, and I think that was a mistake, actually, and I think it's far better to publish the evidence, um, most of which actually comes from the public domain literature um, as soon as possible. Okay, who would like to ask a question? If you can please say who you are, keep them short, and ensure that they are in fact questions. Yes, this was the first hand here, and then the lady with the red hair. Uh, Richard Slack. In the corner, and then you will come to you next. Yeah. Uh, Richard Slack, uh, Emergent Buy Solutions. We uh, generate medical solutions to public health threats. Um, uh, and I will try and uh, give a question, but it, it, it's a bit of an observation to which you might like to respond. The makeup of this panel, like the makeup of SAGE, and the discussion that you've had seems to me to be a about a bilateral relationship between government and academia. But the real wins through the pandemic have been based on a trilateral relationship. And I think Patrick Vallance gets this through the public pandemic partnership. So my question is, is the private sector and industry missing from your discussion? Question. Okay, we'll take that one and we'll take the, the lady there and then have a round of three. Uh, Andrew McKenzie from the Physiological Society. As if science becomes more prominent in government and more front and centre of the decision making in government, how do we stop it becoming more politicised? I think you, you obviously had Patrick Vallance stood next to the Prime Minister on several occasions making perhaps rather dubious comments and then sometimes choosing not to respond and, and it, does that mean that he gets dragged into science, you had over the summer the Labour Party and the Conservative Party uh, arguing two different approaches to the pandemic, both saying they were following the science. So how do you 
how do you stop an inevitable dragging of scientists into politics? Brilliant. I'm going to take one more. Hi, thank you. Tara Austin, uh, Ogilvy Behavioural Science Practice and the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group. So guess where I'm going with this one? Um, the Imperial Centre for Psychedelic Research has led the world in the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, these medicines offer hope uh, to millions of people in terms of the treatment of everything from depression to addiction. They offer hope for levelling up and, and much more besides and yet we're seeing already a bit of a brain drain to America with Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris from Imperial off to San Francisco. And our academics, our leading researchers are chomping at the bit um, for the government, for the Home Office to reschedule uh, these medicines, psilocybin. The scheduling of these medicines is holding up uh, the research that needs to happen. And I want to ask the panel um, how, we, how we can do this. This is a arguably a moral question, a, a political question of the scheduling of what is perceived to be a drug, and yet in every possible context, as I can see in, in academia, it is a medicine and, and needs to be treated as such. How do we overcome this inertia? Brilliant. Okay, Kath, I'll come to you first. Any of those, but particularly interested in whether you think it was a mistake for balance to appear on the same uh, you know, briefing as uh, the Yeah, it was something we sort of toyed with in lots of different directions. I mean, problem is, I think I can understand the reasons why at the beginning it made sense because there are certain questions that, you know, you cannot have um, the chief scientist advising an official answering. So not having a politician there at the same time means that you can't do that. But we did start to think that actually they should have been separate, doing sort of slightly separate press conferences to give a different flavour to it. I think some of that goes, though, to how these press conferences have evolved and whether or not they're sort of going to be a useful um, future um, innovation that we see more permanently um, used as a way of communicating with the public and uh, you know avoiding lobby briefings. More generally though on politicization of science, I, um, I mean this is one of the reasons why we talk about the importance of evidence transparency because I think it's you know and the, and the you know the famous language that you use to help the public understand this is what we're basing this on helps them to um, or helps focus the mind of both politicians and the civil servants who are sort of writing this stuff out to think about, well, actually, what basis do we have for saying this? How can we back it up? How can we make sure that this is clear to the public that actually there is, um, when we're saying it's based on evidence, that actually that's transparent and that is robust? Um, but the other thing to say about that is I think this is why Parliament has such a crucial role, and there's been a lot done in the last 10 years to improve um, not just the way in which um, the Parliament is scrutinising the use of science, but also parliamentary understanding of it. Um, it there's an organisation called uh, Post Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology. They've been doing a lot to work with parliamentarians to help them understand, to bring better connections uh, to the academic community. Um, I think it's a very interesting question about the diversity in terms of uh, the private sector, but I actually think there's a, another, dare I say it, diversity issue uh, which is about all sorts of other kinds of diversity that needs to be there in the conversation of that ethnicity, gender, um, or indeed, you know, perspective on the world. There is always a danger of uh, heavily Oxbridge uh, or London-based perspective when you come to these kind of conversations. So um, I'm going to leave your question alone because I think that's more for the actual scientist and yeah, historian. Do you, do you want to pick up the, the drug research question and perhaps on the industry as well? Yeah, well, let me start with the industry. I absolutely agree that that's a crucial part of how, how any tech sector is going to develop. And the obvious one was the vaccine manufacturing that was, was 
was critically part of that in the, in the pandemic, but I think it's also broadly true. Universities are good at exploring ideas, certainly not that great at scaling up and doing technical development. So it's, it's crucial that you have different structures of that, and industry and private sector, I think, are really good. In, I mean, another side one put on governments, not, not just in terms of... Um, not just in terms of uh, initial funding and policy and regulation, but also procurement. Clearly, the, when there's a market and you can drive the early stage of that market through procurement, I think that makes a big difference as well. So fully, fully support the hypothesis that you were sort of formulating there. Uh, in terms of the drugs, I'm not going to talk about the, the regulatory part of that, but l let me just speak about the, the you, you used the word brain drain. Um, look. Mobility of people is really crucial for testing out good ideas. It's true, people go to the US, people come back from the US. I myself came back from the US. Uh, so so I, I'm, you know, there is a point at which you're right, we might need to be concerned about it, but I'm not concerned about that at the moment, certainly not from the point of view of, of a place like Imperial. But I'll leave the regulatory part, because that's a bit outside my domain for that. Great. Uh, thank you. Well, to Richard's point, I think one of the clear lessons of the, the pandemic response, particularly in vaccines, uh, is the, the partnership between the NHS, um, universities, um, research institutions, uh, and the private sector. I mean, that is palpably the case. Mark mentioned the, the Vaccines Manufacturing Innovation Centre. That's come out of an arrangement that some people here will be familiar with, the Office of Life Sciences, which, um, uh, which is very deliberately and wholeheartedly looking to to address the complementarity. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was um, not far away here in Manchester. My committee met at the University of Manchester, and before we had our formal session, uh, we visited uh, the uh, one of the, uh, the science parks uh, here, which is right next to the hospital. Um, and we were talking to clinicians in the hospital who were uh, saying that the some of the trials that are done by some of the commercial companies there, uh, under the aegis of the university uh, and the NHS, has meant a much quicker time to uh, for, for licensing and uh, and ability to to understand uh, the the potential uh, of new drugs and treatments. Um, and uh, so I think that is I think that is completely understood. Um, when it comes to to the kind of politicization of science. Uh, this goes back to what I was saying about being careful about thinking of there being some you know, sole, uniform, uh, objective scientific advice, and sometimes even evidence. I mean, I, uh, I'm an economist, uh, and the idea that you know, any policymaker would say, well, we're doing this because we asked the economists um, and, and this is what the economists have told us. You say, well, which economists? And, uh, and you know, where that people come from different schools of thought and have different views uh, in this. And that is the same with science. You, you, you have people uh, passionately arguing long before the spotlight was shone on them on the best way to, to proceed. So, so I, don't, I don't think it's right to be kind of concerned that the, the kind of the, the purity uh, of science is somehow being impugned by uh, appearing on a, uh, a kind of lectern in, uh, in 10 Downing Street. And more than that is it happens, and uh, Mark is absolutely right in saying that the, the SAGE advisors 
its chairs, the, uh, the chief scientific advisor, which Nott was, uh, and the chief medical officer, and it's they that give advice to, to doctors. But in our inquiry, um, we heard very explicitly and on the record that during the first phase of the pandemic, and these were different later on, um, that the government followed the advice that they were being given by the CMO uh, and the chief scientific advisor uh, in all material respects. Um, so, so it's not as if being you know, placed side by side was putting them in an invidious position. There was a, to all intents and purposes, a, an agreement about it. Now, I think that raises questions, and we touched on it a bit earlier, about challenge and the danger of, especially when you know, there is a sense in which the kind of public might be spooked, the kind of pressures for, for uniformity and, uh, and the, the possibility for, uh, for people to, to challenge what seems to be the dominant uh, view. So I fret more uh, about the, the pressures on conformity and for I mean, what happened in that first wave, we now know, uh, is that scientific advice, the civil service advice, and the ministers all thought it was possible to, to kind of eke out the imposition of lockdown measures for longer than it proved wise. And there was almost a kind of simultaneous epiphany in which separately everyone realized this was the wrong course. We've got to, uh, to change. Now, we did change, uh, and you know, Patrick Vallance, the members of the committee, said that it came later than it uh, could have done. And so one of the hard lessons we've got to learn is how, with all of our you know, scientific brilliance, all of our deep, you know, absolute commitment to, to public service and the values that go from that, both in the, in the official side and in the scientific side, um, we, we did something that was turned out not to be right. Now, the other thing to, to say uh, about this is that it will often, in fact, it will be usually the case that in uncertainty you do things that turn out not to be right. And that's the point of learning the lessons, to see whether you could, uh, there were things that you could have done, to not, not to attach blame that someone you know, fell down in their job, but what was it that led to that uh, so that you can act against it. And they, something's called a red team uh, challenge uh, is, is one such example. Greg, just quickly on, on Richard's question. So Kate Bingham's sort of success with the Vaccines Task Force, uh, you know, being given real responsibility yeah. resources to an industry expert, that was notable in some sense because it's almost very, very unusual at the Whitehall in the way it sort of physically behaves. Yes. Do you think there's sort of lessons from that? I think there are lessons from it. I think it's absolutely right to, um, to convene the all of the people literally in a in a room that can talk to each other, you know, not send you know, papers to each other, but but thrash things out together. And you know, reports that I uh, pick up are that the since Kate was was there and and running it, a bit of kind of normal Whitehall has started to to creep back. Although the, the latest thing I hear is that the the kind of uh, the antibodies have detected this, and, and this has been recognised, and there's no pushback against that. But but it makes the point that this is uh, organic, and you can't think that you can just learn a lesson, set it up, and assume it'll be fine. You need to be forever vigilant. Okay, Mark. So I mean, there is an agility that happens in wartime. I mean, this is sort of rough variant of war that it's everyone would like to retain 
and there is no question that we did things faster and more efficiently at a much higher risk. And it'd be nice to be able to return some of that, but I think Greg is right. I think there is a sort of terrible danger of breaking things. So we do need to be more agile. Industry was extensive in that measure. Um, Acacia has been mentioned, but the Formula One industry really dug in in terms of helping with ventilators. Um, uh, Innovate UK is kind of the industry. So industry has been involved throughout this. Um, Should they be on stage, though? Um, if the, if the, Sage, if people are appointed not by virtue of the fact they are academics, but by virtue of the fact they have a specific expertise. Um, and um, I was just trying to listen to think, is there anyone who's hungry and wants to come on stage? I don't think there was, but there were a lot of people who felt an action. Um, and Sage was very, very hungry, actually. It had to be on stage. Um, so I think industry is extremely important. I mean, on the politicization question, I actually think that Patrick and Chris handled this extremely well. Um, and one of the things I was always aware of, because it, when you become the chief scientist, right, you become a permanent secretary. And so you are subject to public pressure constantly in terms of that. And the job of civil servants is not to criticize their masters whilst they're in process, as simple as that. And people would always want to you know, try and get me to criticize the government. And you know, Patrick and Chris are not in a position to do that. But they have the privilege, as it were, of being able to talk to most senior politicians, argue with them, present their case very strongly. But then it goes with the job. You then don't broadcast it to people leaving. And I was always aware that the second an advisor starts to broadcast to a government through the media, they have made a different decision and they've got to listen up. Um, so, um, and, and their job is not to be political. Their job is actually to give the evidence and recognize that at the end of the day, um, it, they're, they're not elected. Greg and his colleagues are. Just um, on that, so Neil Ferguson came out recently saying the CMO and GCSO role should be made more independent somehow. Um, Do you think the balance is actually right? Well, actually, historically, the CMO job is different. So the CMO is accountable to Parliament. It's a, a, a role that is recognised in history and actually can't be sacked very easily. Um, uh, the GCSA, on the other hand, which is much more recent, I think it goes back to sort of the mid-1960s, is a permanent secretary. So they actually do have a slightly different statutory relationship. And in fact, of course, um, Ian Diamond, who's the national statistician, again has a sort of Chris Whitty-like uh, constitutional position. Um, on the, uh, the psychedelic drug thing, we have an advisory committee on the issue of the drug. It has an excellent arrangement of the Group of Scientists Advice Committee. And after a, a rather well-known uh, episode, one, one of the members uh, left uh, the SAC, um, it was agreed that there would be a protocol that when um, uh, the, the Home Secretary disagreed with it, um, they would actually write and explain, and that actually happened with respect to CAT. Um, and so, you know, I don't entirely accept your sort of very um, uh, positive assertions about the power of psychedelics. I think there are all sorts of positive assertions, but we have the perfectly good mechanism to look at it, and it shouldn't be politicised. Great, you want to come in? So, on just that? on the independence of Patrick Valance and, and Chris Whitty, um, I, I think it's it, it's possible, and would be wrong to kind of get caught up into kind of paper descriptions of this. The idea that um, these two men, a great eminence uh, in their fields, um, both of them uh, maintaining um, positions and associations with research institutions and universities, both of them having, you know, making you know, income sacrifices, I dare say, to, to take the job. Certainly Patrick Valance was on the board um, of uh, uh, Escape um, uh, before. Uh, the idea that they would, and, and sort of leaving, that's their interest, leaving aside their motivation, which I 
know them and they are palpably in it to, to do the right thing. So I, I don't think we should have in our minds at all that, that the fact that they are, as it were, uh, on the government payroll compromises their independence. If they were being asked to do things uh, that they thought was uh, that, that, that were wrong uh, and, uh, and unethical, um, or even, frankly, just wrong and misguided to an appreciable degree, I'm absolutely certain that they, uh, they would not do it and they would not appear at the, uh, at the press conference and they would uh, say so themselves. So, so I don't think we should, um, yeah, we, can, we can be interested in the kind of structures on paper, but actually I, I don't think it's, um, it should trouble us in practice in this case. Yes, actually, I never felt under any pressure at any point during my tenure at the GCFAO to, uh, as it were, modulate my advice for the Pope. Never. And I mean, the, the whole point of the GCFAO in the same way is to provide their advice. It won't necessarily be taken. I mean, I use the example of um, a climate change. Um, some people don't like the policy implications, so they try and get around the science. When it comes to the science, there shouldn't be any argument. It is what it is, but then there are a series of policy options, um, one of which is to do nothing about it. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would probably agree with that, but, but, um, but that is a policy option, and that's uh, something that everyone has a, a say on, but uh, we all have a vote. Okay, Kath, come back on that, and then I'll uh, take another round of questions. Yeah, very, just very briefly, um, and I thoroughly agree with that, what you were saying about Patrick and Chris. I think the point I was trying to make was, was not were they in danger of, of appearing too political, it's how to protect them. Mm. From that, I mean, and uh, it does worry me when you got to a position where Chris Whitty was getting abuse on the streets, and I worry therefore about how future people will see that role. And so it's more about is there more that we can do to protect that role to make sure that the public are very aware of the boundaries and also the broadcasters, so that they understand. Of course, they're going to want to try and get a gotcha moment where they make one of them squirm. And I actually thought they handled a lot of that extremely well. Um, but what can we do to make sure that people understand the difference between that and you know the, the, the role of the politicians, which is to answer for whatever it is that the government is doing? Okay, let's have some more questions. Yeah, lady there, lady on the row there, and then in the red. Hi, Ellie King from uh, Warwick Manufacturing Group. Um, I, it's a really interesting discussion, and I think one of the things that is involved in this that hasn't really been talked about is how the media communicates science to the general public mm. and the importance of like the public's understanding of what science is um, and how we use science. So like, how does the media's role in influence that? And is there anything that, any kind of thoughts on that or anything that you think maybe could be done to, to improve that relationship? Uh, Rachel from Cancer Research UK. So my question's for you, Greg. Um, it was really interesting to hear about you witnessing some research here in Manchester before sitting with your committee. And I wanted to ask about um, the importance, or if you think it's important, to create time for research within the NHS and whether or not you think that is actually sufficiently um, provided for at this point in time. Hello there, uh, Dr. Alexandra Trevenant. Um, so there's been fantastic science come out of the pandemic over the last 18 months, the vaccines, etc. However, one area that seems to be a bit shaky has been the modeling uh, that has come out that doesn't always seem to be matching what actually occurs in real life. Have the models been too complex or too simple? Or have, um, and how are we going to improve <laughs> modeling to allow for better policy in the future? 
brilliant. I'm going to take actually one more question just at the back there. there is, yeah. Hi, Susan Mitchell from Alzheimer's Research UK. My question was, what are the future challenges we should be preparing for now? Lovely. Thank you. Um, Ian, I'm going to start with you. Can you pick up the, the one on the media and then any others you want to pick sure. up? Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's clear that we need better ways to articulate science in an intelligible way so that a public public can understand it. And I think from the university perspective, it's partly about understanding how we engage and, and work with our academics to make that make that possible. Um, most grants now, and again, Mark in his UKRI role will be able to say more too, uh, in include that kind of challenge as an explicit challenge. There's a lot of work about responsible research and innovation, which I think is rightly getting more prominence now that will help in that discourse. Um, we have our science communication master's course. I think that's the critical kind of thing to be an interlocutor between the science and the public. Uh, so I, I, I do think that's a crucial part. I think the, the during the pandemic, the people who've appeared on TV that have been compelling in that articulation have made have made really great inroads into models for how we how we take that forward. Greg, Rachel's question on NHS research and then anything on the others. So I completely agree with uh, Rachel, and it's, it's kind of linked to this insurance point that, of course, there are pressures um, to, to cut the time for research, but it is absolutely vital. And Mark made the, the point of the, the foundations of Sarah Gilbert's work that were built on to be able to come up with a vaccine so quickly. So uh, it is very important, and we need to, to protect and defend that. I, I completely uh, to Aileen's point on uh, on communication, uh, it was it was mentioned I think some some time earlier about the Science Media Centre, who I find do a, an excellent job, and their approach is to is usually as people here might know is to bring together a number of different experts um, and put them in front of the, uh, the press, either on the record or off the, the record, so you can have different perspectives and sustained questioning. And that's kind of what we've done on the committee, and it's one of the reasons why you know, I think people have tuned in, because I think people are interested in, uh, in seriousness um, and can see that, although I think the, the Downing Street press conferences you know, were a kind of valuable thing, you know, you've got one question, um, a great effort to kind of sneak in a second question on the, the back of it, but that was it. And it's the same, frankly, in the House of Commons, the dispatch box. Um, you get a, a question to the Minister or to the Secretary of State, and you don't get a chance to, to follow it up and to question the answer. So, so that kind of approach, I think there is, a, there is an appetite for it on the part of the, the public, and, and we should indulge it. Uh, and you mentioned you're from the uh, from WMG, the World Manufacturing Group. Uh, one, of the, one of the IOP things of bringing the committee to the University of Manchester and, and you know, poking our nose in some labs and see what's going on is that, it, you know, as we all know, it, it does make a difference to kind of see rather than just read about things. And actually, a lot of what is done in science and technology, uh, for that matter, is not seen. That's the, the final products. Are. Um, and I think, I mean, obviously, some things have to be totally secure. I think you know, to get more people onto campuses and to have talks. One of the things uh, I did a couple of years ago when I was in Munich was to 
to go around the, the BMW factory, the manufacturing plants, not a technology rather than uh, science. But they've arranged it, and they do it in Japan, if you're on the Toyota plant in Japan. They have kind of walkways that are that snake their way around the production line, so you can look down, you can see what a modern you know, automated facility is. Um, and I took, I took my kids with me on holiday in, uh, in Bavaria. And actually, I'm sure that sort of is implanted in their minds, um, a, uh, obviously not a knowledge about technology, but a kind of um, uh, an image of it um, that you can't just get from textbooks. So I would encourage WMG and, and other people to, you know, however inconvenient and disruptive, to, to try and have the public in for for tours uh, into what's there. Mark, I feel you might be best equipped to be the clairvoyant on the panel and look at the, the future challenges, and then also any comment on the, the modelling question. Yeah, sure. Um, I will just say something about broadcasting, because actually, or the media, I, I think it's actually been extraordinarily good, actually. Uh, the vast majority of journalists have worked really hard to try and get accurate. The accuracy of the BBC reporting has been exceptional, and other channels as well. I think one of the difficulties is that if you are on a broadcaster interview, the shortage of time means it's very, very hard to do nuance. Mm. And, and I think that is a problem, uh, and there's no easy solution to that. Um, on the modeling, I mean, I couldn't disagree with you more, actually. The modeling has been extraordinary. Um, but models don't make predictions. Models can give you projections, and if you look at all the models, they've always been bounded by variability, by uncertainty. And of course, one of the things that models have helped uh, policymakers to do is to do things to stop the prediction happening. And so if a model said there could be up to X cases, and there aren't that, that may well be because of the intervention. Uh, the models are inevitably too simple because we're dealing with very complex phenomena. And the modeling gets better over time because it depends on understanding the virus, understanding how it reproduces all sorts of things. But actually the modeling has been very, very powerful. And modelers don't do predictions. They do scenarios, they do projections, but they don't predict. Um, so I, I, I would depend on models, actually. I think it's been one of the strengths, and actually the UK's worked really hard. Uh, on the future challenges, well, there's pestilence, there's famine, there's plague. Um, but to be serious, I think that, um, and I, well, I am serious in the sense that, you know, we're not done with um, uh, infectious disease, I'm afraid. Um, but I think our infrastructure is an area where I think we'll have to worry. It goes back to the um, uh, efficiency, resilience question. We are now critically dependent on the internet in ways we weren't before. Um, uh, we haven't had a full-blown cyber war, but there's a, a level of cyber conflict going on all the time. Um, and we have got fairly aging infrastructure. So I think there's a lot of potential, and we see cascading failures, as I said right at the beginning. So. I think there could be quite a lot of challenges there. And then there is the obvious challenges that come with uh, climate um, uh, and waste. Um, so unfortunately, I think there are a lot of challenges and there are a lot of people on the planet who are quite difficult. Greg, you want to come back on that and then I'll come to Pat. Yeah, just on the modelling thing. So I, I, I think the, there has been too much of a tendency to, to have kind of point estimates uh, that have been seized on out of models which is not the fault of the modelers. I think it's a symptom of what Mark describes as the, you know, the, the nuance being lost in a broadcast interview, and suddenly you know, we're predicting 50,000 deaths uh, or whatever. Um, and the, 
to extensive evidence on this in, in most disciplines, including epidemiology, the point of a model is not actually to come up with an estimate, it's to, to consider, as it were, the kind of the mechanics um, of the, the forces uh, that are shaping us. But I do think that the, the, the prominence of modelling numbers has not reflected that uh, nuance, um, and, uh, and that is a concern, and I think we ought to try and learn a lesson for this. I would say that the Bank of England, uh, for example, tends to be a bit better when it, um, and the Office of Budget Responsibility, when it gives its forward forecast, it has a kind of a fan chart of, um, of different outcomes, and they're always very reluctant to articulate a particular number, they say, look at the fan chart, um, and, you know, a lesson to be learned is perhaps not to not to crystallize it into a single number that then becomes the definitive number and if you don't if it doesn't transpire to be uh, to be correct and how could it be then this is seen to be a kind of uh, a failure of the the model yeah. uh, when actually it might be totally consistent with the with the spread of outcomes with it come in on that and how models are communicated yeah, well, actually, I wanted to tie up several of these questions. The one about yeah, communication and science, this point about modelling, and then also the question about future challenges. Because actually, I think for all we talked about the inquiry and lessons learned and so forth, the big lessons for us, um, there are going to be some very important ones for government, for structures of government, for ministers, etc. But actually, the big lessons are going to be ones that we need social scientists now to work on, which is, has you know, how has the pandemic affected the public's understanding of these kind of future challenges and what that might mean for us, or indeed, has it even affected us? You know, has it changed the way in which we conceive of government, uh, the desire for certainty over modelling of what is happening, what is going to happen, uh, the way in which it may or may not have changed the, the way, you know, it wants government to communicate um, with it about sort of science and the risks and so forth. And I mean, going to, to Mark's point about infrastructure and, and cyber and so forth, I'm sure, you know, many of us here were affected by the WhatsApp outage yesterday, um, which, you know, we can all laugh and joke about it and so forth, but it is a reminder that stuff like that goes down and we're all like, what do we do? How do we cope? Um, so there's, there's some big questions for us about how the public can cope with some of these future challenges and what lessons we can take from the pandemic, but a completely non-scientific final um, observation as a historian uh, the feeling you always get is the next thing that's going to happen is going to be some, you know, twist on whatever's happened before. So it, it will be very hard for us to actually predict because it will be uh, something random we just couldn't conceive. Okay, we've got time for one last question. So why not very quickly over there? Yeah, we'll, we'll take that and then we'll wrap up. Uh, uh, my, uh, Andrew Will, Altrincham Sale West. Uh, I've been a chartered engineer for 40 years, so my sympathy is with science. However, I'm a sympathetic with science, absolutely not. Uh, my concern with, with, uh, with science is highlighted with COVID, the climate change argument. It's also um, the concern with, say, the dietary advice. I won't mention the first two, but the, the, how, would, how would you prevent cock-ups, scientific cock-ups that have have already and can have the potential to neg negatively affect millions. I'll give an example. The, uh, the first scientific advice on diet was issued in 1961 by Ansel Keys in the States, based on his diet heart hypothesis. Scientists at the time 
were not in agreement, in full agreement. Those who disagree were driven out of the industry. They were ostracized and ignored, belittled. Studies were, large studies were conducted after the advice was given. The advice was given with no prior tested, uh, and uh, no uh, prior knowledge and studies that were based on assumptions. The, the uh, d information in those studies that didn't agree with the hypothesis was ignored. It was found 40 years later in a basement, magnetic tapes and datron 40 years afterwards, that completely contradicted the, the, poli the policy given. And uh, there was a letter in the BMJ in, in, uh, in 2016, I think, that uh, covered that. But basically, how do you prevent cock-ups? If, 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 if scientists can't look at themselves and accept that they have human weaknesses of arrogance, overconfidence, etc., then we're going to lose trust of the population. Okay, thank you. Mark, I'm going to come to you first on cooks. Yeah, I, well, I mean, you know, scientists are humans, and a bit like MPs, there are some that are good and there are some that are less good. It is as simple as that. Um, and, um, but, it, I mean, it is actually part of the value system of science, and it's very much part of the education that there is a rigor in the process, and because actually uh, science, it doesn't accrete in single steps. Uh, it accretes in small bits of evidence. And so it is a sort of self-confirming or self-refuting process. And so the truth does eventually out. Um, diet has been a very difficult area, actually. I, I think it's difficult to do good dietary studies, and I think that there hasn't been rigor in some of them. So um, I think one, you know, we know generally that obesity tends to be an unhealthy condition, and actually being uh, undernourished is unhealthy as well. Um, and that controlling calories is very important, but there is a lot of... Um, well as science in uh, diet, um, but uh, drugs such as statins have actually been extremely powerful in terms of um, reducing uh, coronary artery disease. So, um, uh, but, uh, you know, scientists are not on a pedestal, um, and um, by and large, it is part of the training that um, uh, you do do things rigorously, it is the power of the experimental approach, um, and, um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I yeah, I would endorse what Marcus said. I think one has to distinguish between the natural uncertainty of scientific progression until one can reach a conclusion. Some areas are more amenable to that than others. We have a structure for space-time and curved space and general relativity that I think everybody agrees is right. I think there are other areas where it's much harder to come to a single conclusion about what truth is. I would distinguish that from the lack of integrity in research, uh, that's the bad scientist to which uh, Mark refers. There, I think it's both rigor in training and oversight, both in, in research that's done in individual laboratories and then the wider review system, followed by reproducibility. And we have to uh, hold ourselves to account as scientists in order to ensure that the latter does not occur. But the former part will always be there and we just need to understand how we are going to use that to inform policy and other decisions based on the inherent uncertainty in some of those areas. Last word from you, Greg. Uh, thank you. Well, in all circumstances, there are going to be times in which you're operating under uncertainty and you'll make the wrong call based on all the best information you had, all the best learning that you had, um, done, synthesized in a high-minded way, but it's only 
in practice that that turns out to be wrong. And we must we must understand that that's that's inevitable, um, just as it is in other walks of life. No, no one in business would regard any kind of business setback, whether it's you know, a company or a marketing campaign, uh, as being an indication that they were kind of worthless um, uh, as a potential businessman or woman. In fact, many many of them have gone on to to learn important lessons and to prosper from that. And uh, I don't think science is exempt from that. But we do should reflect on what are the things that can force learning, sometimes uncomfortable. We've talked about transparency. I think for people to know what the basis of, uh, of statements and advice is, uh, is important. Uh, if we said reproducibility, my committee's next inquiry will be into reproducibility, uh, the question of whether it is possible for someone other than the, the researcher that wrote a paper to take the same data or comparable data and find the same results. And it seems to me that it ought to, part of the standards ought to be that it's possible to do that. Uh, so, so we should do that. But it, as Mark said, um, everyone is, uh, is human and it can be uncomfortable to have your your views challenged to the point of sometimes being replaced. The classic work on this, probably many people in this room know, is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote in the 1950s, would it be, uh, Mark? Um, which describes just the the kind of birth pangs of when you, you move from one way of seeing the world to another and you know, the, 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 the institutional forces and the, you know, the kind of... Um, uh, forces in the brain that that throw up resistance to that. So it's not new. It's not a uh, it's not a new sin of the uh, the kind of twenty uh, twenties. It's something that has occupied scientific thinkers uh, and more for many years. And what Kuhn described was really writing down what I'm sure had been thought for for many hundreds of years before that. Okay. Um. Thank you uh, to my panel. We're going to leave it there. Um, please do grab a, a sandwich or a cup of tea or something on the way out. Um, quick parish notice, we've got another IFG event in just over an hour in this room on decarbonising homes. Next door, no, exchange one. <laughs> Thank you, Penny. Um, please do join us for that if you would like to. We've got Lord Callanan from uh, the business department, among others. Um, all that remains for me is to thank again our sponsors, Royal Society and Imperial College London. Thank you very much for all of your questions and thank you to my brilliant panel for a really engaging conversation. Thank you.